Sage Canyon Drive is a sleepy road in the South Belt Ellington neighborhood of Houston. It's a typical American suburb, really, of modest ranch homes and manicured lawns. In the early hours of June the 13th, 1998, the peace in that neighborhood was broken when an electrical engineer called Daryl Collahaco was found dead on his living room floor. He had suffered massive head injuries from multiple blows with a steel pipe. Daryl's estranged wife, Diamantina, and her boyfriend, Andres Mascoro, were arrested and charged with capital murder. Prosecutors would say Diamantina had paid Andres to kill her husband for more than $100,000 in life insurance money. They said the couple had met in a bar seven months before the murder and embarked on an affair that they'd moved into an apartment together, although she occasionally still stayed with her husband at the house on Sage Canyon Drive. On the day of the murder, the prosecution would claim Diamantina kept her children back from the house while Andres killed Daryl. A jury ended up convicting Andres of capital murder and he was sentenced to life in prison. He's not eligible for parole until 2039. Four months after that, Diamantina received the same sentence. But were they innocent? Diamantina and her boyfriend got put in life in prison because of what I did. What I did. DMT Media and Audio Boom. This is the Dead Man Talking Podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. As you heard in the previous episode, I started writing to Diamantina while she was in prison. Since I started telling stories about criminal justice in the States, I've written to and also visited countless inmates in US prisons. Once I've identified a potential story, I might write to the inmate to establish some kind of rapport. There are a whole variety of reasons I might want to do a story on their case, but if I ever wanted to actually interview them down the line, if I've established communication beforehand, they might then agree to the interview. Diamantina had never, as far as I knew, done a media interview before, and so um, I didn't know whether that was because she'd never been asked or because she was kind of reluctant. I had never met Resendez, so it took me for a loop. He wrote me to tell me that he had done it, even went to describe my house. Had it right, too. I wrote back to her from England. My motivation is that I have Resendez on tape, claiming to have committed the crime for which you are now in prison. If there has been a miscarriage... Dear Alexander, thank you so much for letting me know what's going on. I do remember I was in Dayton. I received a letter from Resendez, the first one. Dayton officials kept that first letter. To be honest, I'm really keen day, on interviewing no you. There's a process we have to go through. I think I'll need a little more info from you. For TDCJ to set it up, they need a letter. I will be happy to speak to you if you can arrange the visit. Just be warned, because there is so much that I have to say. It will knock your socks off. I had so many questions for her. I mean, why would Resendez have admitted killing Daryl? What did she make of that when she first heard that that was the case? What did he say in his letters to her? And why were they confiscated by the prison? And most importantly, can she shed any light on the interview that I did with him? 
A recently published report by the Prison Policy Initiative brings to light staggering statistics about women in prison. 200,000, far more than any other country on the planet. The growth of the women's prison population has nearly tripled since 1990. And women are coming into prison at a faster rate than men. More and more people in the country on all political sides agree it's time to ask about the job. They led us down a corridor and into this long room. And it was just us in there. So it was only me and the producer, Pete, and the Department of Criminal Justice media guy, Robert. All right, all right. I heard the jangling of um, handcuffs and Diamantina was led in. I could see her coming in. She wasn't like I imagined because I'd seen pictures of her when she was a lot younger. She's a lot older. She's overweight. She's got long uh, grey hair and glasses, thick glasses. So it was kind of shocking to see how much she's aged in prison. And she was brought through behind the glass. I, would, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate you agreeing to do this. And if there's anything you Robert went over to her and just explained who he was, um, just made sure she knew what was happening and what the procedure was. And then she was led to one of the chairs and she sat down and she was mic'd up. You don't have a pocket, do you? And I sat down and said hello. It's been a it's been a long time. It's been a long time. We've been talking to each other on by mail for a long time. Right. I can't believe we finally I finally get to meet you. I'm hearing impaired, so it's kinda Do you wanna do you wanna use the phone? I don't know what let me see how that can be better. How's that? I that's better. I started off by taking her back to that fateful day when her husband was killed. She'd been with her sons, Alex and Jose. You'd been shopping. Tell me about this. So we headed on home, and while Alex and I were getting the stuff out of the pickup, Jose is the one that walked in the house. But I don't know if the door was open or he unlocked it or anything. I don't know. All I know is that he came running back out, and he grabbed me, and he says, don't go in there. And he, I said, what? He says, don't go in there. He says, Daryl, Daryl's dead or Daryl something, you know. And all I know, I do know that I got hysterical. When Daryl was found, um, were the bolts still on the door? How, how would the, the intruder have got in to the house? I don't know. That's just it. I didn't get to go to the house because Jose, my son, is the one that walked in. Mm. And then he came running out and he wouldn't let me go in the house. He just wouldn't let me go. He grabbed a hold of me and said, no, you're not going in there. So I never got to go in the house. Who would have wanted to kill Daryl? That's... I have no idea because Daryl wasn't a violent man. You know, he was, I mean, he was generous to the core. You know, he never said no to anybody that mm. I know of. Even if it was his last, even if it was the last, you know, his last shirt or whatever, he would give it. So no, Daryl didn't deserve that. I'd read that when the police arrived, Diamantina told Detective Tabor, who was one of those first officers on scene, personal information about Daryl's sexuality. And then that you told him your husband was bisexual and this could have had something to do with his murder. Yeah, do, you, no. do you remember saying that or no? I do remember saying that he was bisexual. Mm. Even though Daryl was bisexual, Diamantina claimed the couple was still together. We were together. You were together. Yeah, but the thing is that I stayed more at the apartment than I did at the house. As you heard at the start of the program, Diamantina had a lover, Andreas Mascoro, who she shared an apartment with, and Daryl knew about Andreas. Mm -hmm. Did he mind? If he did, he'd never said anything. I didn't give it a secret. I took anybody can tell you. Mm. I took him to the house several times. You did? Yeah. So it was an open, open... So it wasn't any secret. And it you was know, an open and, relationship. Uh, Daryl met him. Mm. He didn't like it. You know, and I'd like to deal with it. 
Diamantina said she was affected by the death of her father, and this had an impact on her behaviour. I just went out of control. I didn't give a damn about anything or anybody. So I did what I was going to do. You know, that's how I was coping with my pain. Hmm. So according to the prosecution, Diamantina had signed a confession basically saying that she kept her kids away from the house while Andreas went in and murdered Daryl Colahaco. Now, Diamantina told me that she didn't have her glasses on that day and she made a point of saying, you know, show me the glasses she wears now. She says she's always worn glasses, she has terrible eyesight and that she didn't have glasses at the time and wasn't aware of what she was signing. She said, the police officer said, well, it's just everything we've been talking about. So she signed the piece of paper which amounted to a confession which they then used to take to Andreas Mascaro and say, here, Diamantina's confessed uh, that you murdered Daryl Colahaco and then he apparently signed a confession as well. It's massively troubling if if that happened. Did he mention anything about why he confessed? Did you ask him in any of your letters? He never answered. He never, you know... uh, So he wrote down, he says, as long as we write, he says, I don't want to write about anything that's going on. He says, that's right, you know, so... I just followed his lead on, on the letter, so... But I have no understanding why he would say he was in the house. He just couldn't have been. So I asked her how she reacted when she heard that Andreas had confessed. And she seemed to dwell on this idea that he couldn't possibly have done it because the police alleged that he went round the back of the house and went in the back door. And she told me the door was always locked. There's no way he would have been able to go in the back door. And I just thought this was a very odd reason for her thinking that Andreas could never have killed Daryl Kalahaka. It wasn't, this man had no capacity for evil. There's no way he could have killed my uh, husband. Uh, But that wasn't what she was saying. She was saying, there's no way he could have killed him because there's no way he would have come round the back door. He knew that it was bolted. It was just an odd thing to dwell on. This wasn't just a flippant remark. She kind of kept dwelling on this and kept kept repeating this. This, The the back door to the house would have been bolted. There's no way he would have been able to get in there. But then I have to also entertain the idea that she's been in prison a long time. I mean, prisoners kind of focus on these things because they've got nothing else to focus on. For her, that didn't make any sense. So maybe it was massively amplified. One that I did, that the lady, the, the, the blame for me doing it, she's serving life, life in prison. Who? Uh, this is the Diamantina Salinas Colojaco. What was the first time that you ever heard that Resendez was saying that he was connected with your case? Was it when he wrote to you? Yes, I got a letter from him saying that, uh, that he was going to own up to what he did. I read the letter, and uh, the warden took the letter, so I never got it back. And from what I understand, Resendez wrote me two more times, but they were intercepted, so I never got those letters. So I had no understanding why. So she mentioned that Resendez had written to her again, but she never saw the letter. So I obviously asked her, how would you know that he'd written to you if you didn't see the letter? And she said that he'd told somebody else. She didn't tell me who that was, but she said that he'd told somebody else about this and that they had then told her. She says she'd also never been given a confiscation note, which is what you get if they confiscate something from you. So she's got no proof that she ever had this letter, that this letter ever existed. Now, what did the letter say? that he was sorry that I'm where I'm at because of him. And uh, he described some of my house, you know. I mean, he put some stuff that, you know, did pertain to my house. So I'm like, okay, 
How would he know? What were the? Do you remember what he knew about the house that that, that surprised you? That made you think? He said that uh, when he looked uh, towards up the stairs, there was a big old uh, canvas painting, which there was, you know, and the pink, uh, the rug was pink. I mean, the carpet was pink, and yes, it was, you know. So. Mm. But nothing yeah. ever happened. I mean, the, the the you never got contacted by your like your attorney, your original attorney. Mm-mm, nothing, nothing. Uh, the attorney I had, he was like, "You need to forget this. You need to forget that. That's not going nowhere. This is not going nowhere. This is not going to get you anywhere." So what was I supposed to do? I mean, he was the only attorney I had. I had no family, you know, to turn to and say, "Hey, investigate this or or whatever," you know. So I basically did what he told me to do. Did you ever speak to another journalist or the media? Mm-mm. Never. This is the first time. Yes, sir. Wow. I explained to her exactly what Resendiz had said when I met him. He told me that her husband picked me up yep. in Magnolias. Okay. They was to go to work. Okay. Um, Daryl picked him up at a place called Magnolias, which was a, a day labor spot outside of Houston. I've tried to look this up. I can't find anywhere that he would have been talking about, but that's what he contended. He contended that that Daryl picked him up uh, at Magnolias for day labor, and then um, he said he killed him because Daryl was bisexual. That, that's what he said. W- was that even something that Daryl would ever have done, pick up a day laborer? Daryl was very, very, always, if somebody was always hitchhiking, he would. He'd give them a ride to their destination or whatever. He, he had a good heart to do stuff like that, you know. Anybody walking that, that would pitch, you know, he would pick up and take them to wherever, you know, and even give them money if he felt that up. Mm-hmm. So this is interesting. It wouldn't have been unusual for Daryl to pick up a transient or maybe someone who looked as Resendiz did. But then she told me something else which pricked up my ears. And uh, I remember he mentioned something about his wife and his kids. Mm. Yeah, no. He did have a, he had a wife in Mexico and a, and a, a kid. Well, when I interviewed him, his kid was three. So she would have been born in about 2000 or 1999. Mm. Do you remember what he, why he mentioned them? Something about his wife and his, that they needed looking after. Uh, he says, I'm going to do my best. He says, I got you in there. He says, I'm going to try to get you out. He says, but all I asked was for his, his wife and his child not to be without. You know, so why me? Why Andreas of all people? Mm. This was strange. And to be honest, I wasn't expecting it. Could Resendiz have been hinting that he would take the blame in return for making sure his family would be okay financially after his death? It didn't make much sense. If that was the case, it was an extremely long shot. Diamantina and Andreas would have to be exonerated, and then Diamantina would have to get Daryl's life insurance payout, and then she'd have to locate Resendiz's family in Mexico and give them some of the money. As she said, why her? Why Andreas, of all people? Do you regret the way that you, anything about the way that, you know, like not speaking to the press or not pursuing certain things over the years? Or No, the only thing I regret is listening to my lawyer. I mean, don't do this, don't do that. If it's, like I told him, why not? And he said, because Salinas is, is, is irrelevant. Okay, let's stop right there. She's referring to Salinas. He was her first husband before Daryl. If I really wanted to kill somebody... For any kind of money, it would have been Salinas, because uh, 
he had money. He was uh, millions of you know dollars. Mm. Not you know no insurance money or anything. She said her then husband was a high-profile Mexican drug boss who was operating in the U.S. And how big did he become? Big. <laughs> they were building houses, buying businesses, you know, cash money, 100000 here, 100000 there. They were buying thoroughbreds. They bought jets. You know, my job was to spend. That was it and that was all. <laughs> <laughs> what was he dealing, like cocaine and marijuana? Everything. Everything. Mm-hmm. And then he escaped? Yeah. She told me she used to visit Salinas regularly, and then one day he said, don't come for the next two weeks. He said it was because other members of his family had to visit, but the next thing she knew, the Texas Rangers were at her door asking where he was because he'd escaped. She insists the guards must have helped him because apparently he used one of their vehicles to get to the Mexican border. Either way, he disappeared into Mexico, and she never heard from him again. You're saying, basically, if that had been brought up at your trial, that may have given the jury a reason to, to, to... At least, you know, I mean, if they would have accused me for anything, they would have known that I come from money, mm. you know, that it wasn't, you know, just this. But like I said, the lawyer said no. He said it was irrelevant, that I mm. couldn't do that because Salinas had escaped from the federal penitentiary and this, this, and this, mm. and it wouldn't look good. So he just went on and on. So I'm really glad I finally got the chance to interview her, and she... She definitely answered some of the questions that I that I had. I feel like I know far more than when I went in, but I'm also left with more questions that need answering. For example, if she'd signed this confession without reading glasses and, and, and didn't know what she was signing, why didn't her attorney do something about that? Did her attorney even know that she'd signed this confession without knowing what it said? I also want to know what her attorney did about the Resendez confession, if anything. And finally, why has Andreas never responded to my letters? I've written to him numerous times over the years. I've never heard anything from him. Diamantina, thank you so much. I appreciate you talking to me. It's good to finally meet you after all these years. (laughs) All right. All right, then. Take care. Okay, I'll be safe. Bye, Diamantina. Bye. Thanks, Robert. The Dead Man Talking wouldn't be possible without our very supportive sponsors. And HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that plans and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook and enjoy them. And there are three plans to choose from, classic, veggie and family. Now, I had a box delivered and, as you know, I live in Texas and it's currently in the 90s outside. But the box is fully insulated and contains ice packs so the food won't spoil. And I got to cook... Uh, steak with a peppercorn sauce and cream kale and french fries and it was absolutely delicious. The best bit is there's zero wasted because all the ingredients come in pre-measured handy labelled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes, visit hellofresh.com forward slash dmt. 60. So make sure you use the promo code. Enter DMT60 when you check out. So spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping each week and get that time back to do more of what you love. But I wasn't the only one who Resendez told he killed Daryl Colahaco. 
Mark Babinek was working as a reporter for the Associated Press in the late 1990s and covered the Resendez case. Nice, modest house in the suburbs of Houston. Beautiful lawn, American flag and a Texas flag above the door. Mark's invited me to his home in Houston. Hey, hey Mark, come on in, hey. how are you? <laughs> he met Resendez in 2003 when he traveled to death row to interview him. You might recall I had to buy Resendez a donut and a Coke before he'd agreed to talk to me. Babinek received a similar request. He asked for a Coke and some Skittles, you know, like almost like a kid. And uh, so I bought him a Coke and some Skittles and we talked and, and had that kind of conversation. It was very amicable and very intelligent. Resendez began to tell him about this extra murder. And described the scene in fairly good detail. And uh, he wanted to talk about that a little bit. He described uh, the house. You presumably didn't ask him, hey, tell me about the Colohaco case. He br- he volunteered this information. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. It came out of nowhere. No, no, because he'd never been linked with it uh, pr- prior to that. So what did you? what was your next steps? Did you think, I'm going to take this seriously? I felt like I owed it not to him, but to the facts, if you will, to uh, at least start doing some cursory checks. Called up the case, looked up uh, some of the details. Aspects of the murder would have kind of fit. Uh, and then I drove down to the house. Uh, you know, I wanted to take a look and see, okay, well, I have all these descriptions, and they were fairly specific, oddly specific in some cases, like the shape of the fence. And sure enough, it all panned out. Uh, it all, it actually checked out. And like I said, unusual details. Not that the house was pink or red or blue or whatever it was, but things like the water tower and the fence and uh, that sort of thing. This was extraordinary. Mark had gone to the Colahaco crime scene and it was exactly as Resendez had described. And what struck me was the specific details. But could he have found out these details another way, from newspaper reports perhaps? No, no. I mean, you know, it was th- things like the wooden privacy fence had a serpentine shape to it. Why, why on earth would that have been mentioned in a newspaper? And I never did see the, in, any of those details mentioned. It wasn't covered that closely. So No, I mean, uh, I, I only found, I think, four or five news right. stories, very short news mm-hmm. stories, uh, very factual. I mean, I never saw any description. Because he didn't really, he, he, yeah, like I say, he got into the scene more than the, the killings themselves, which you could argue maybe there would have been more detail about that. But uh, he really got more into just uh, kind of a, mental snapshot of what it looked like and it looked like what he said what was interesting about the Colahaco murder as far as the Resendez confession goes is that the house was nowhere near railroad tracks but as you heard me tell Diamantina earlier Resendez claims that Daryl picked him up from this day labor spot in Houston that he called Magnolias I could find no mention of Magnolias in my research, but Mark told me that there are several places like this in Houston where you can pick people up to work as day laborers. Back in the day, there were uh, a lot of places that you knew you could go and find someone to mow a yard, dig a ditch, paint a fence. You know, oh, really? Absolutely. So it's conceivable yeah. that there was one called Magnolias. Oh, absolutely. Uh, p- perhaps. It could have been a slang term. It, it, you know, uh, you'd see them at Home Depots. You'd see them certain street corners. You know where to look. And uh, it was a way to get uh, inexpensive, reasonably unskilled labor usually. Uh, and I guess you could argue perhaps what he said happened happened, that he got picked up as an itinerant laborer or that sort of thing. Maybe the murder happened later. So maybe he was familiar with the, the house then became familiar with the case and put two and two together. That'd be an awfully large coincidence, but I'm just devil's advocate that, you know, anything's possible. Babinek took the information he got from Resendez and his own findings to the prosecutors, and he told them. 
you've got people in prison for this case, and now you have a, a known serial killer who's about to be executed divulging fairly specific details. Are you going to investigate further? And they uh, they said no. They said that uh, they were confident in their case and uh, the evidence that they had and uh, that, uh, that he might have picked it up in either in Harris County Jail or somewhere in the prison system. He might have picked up some of those details. As far as I could find, uh, he had not served time uh, in the ensuing uh, months or years with uh, anyone involved in that case, as far as we could tell. It was next to impossible that Diamantina or Andres could have struck a deal with Resendez. They were never in jail at the same time, and Resendez was sent to death row while they were sent to regular prison. What about uh, Colajaco or Mascaro's attorneys? Were they interested, or did you not speak? Did you speak they to were them? aware, yeah, and and, uh, and and they were at that point trying to get retrials, but uh, they never could get any appellate courts to, to bite on it. You know, you move on. You know, uh, you're one of four wire service reporters covering uh, uh, the nation's fourth largest city, and you just kind of got to move on. But the level of those oddball details have always kind of stuck with me. Oh. That was amazing. Far better than I than I could have hoped for, really. I mean, it's like um, the fact that he hasn't stopped thinking about the Diamantina Colahaco case, which... If I'd have covered it like he did, I would have been exactly the same. I mean, how can you just forget something like that? When he, his story was basically like, you know, I just interviewed this serial killer. He described the crime scene at a house that he was never convicted of, of committing the crime there. Um, I went to the house. Everything he said matched. And that's the end of my story. I mean, there's no way you can let that go. As a journalist, you can't. You can't let that go. Um, but he's... You know, he moved on. He, he's not only did he move on story-wise, but he's moved on job-wise since then, and so sort of still thinks about it. But um, which gives me more impetus, I think, to kind of follow that up. Hey, I'm sorry, Jack. How are you? Yeah, Alex Hannaford. Yeah, Alex Jack. Lovely to meet you. How are you? I wanted to speak to Jack Zimmerman, Resendez's attorney, who represented him at his final appeal. And he invited me to meet him at his office in downtown Houston. There were framed newspaper cuttings around the walls that chronicled the big cases Jack had been involved with over the years. Back in the early 90s, he represented one of the leaders of the Branch Davidian religious sect, this was the cult that was involved in a shootout with federal agents in a 51-day siege at their compound near Waco. Eventually, 76 people died in a fire, and it was international news. It would be up to the lawyer for the woman who was falsely convicted, if that's what we believe happened, to uh, raise that another person had confessed to that, and I think a competent defense lawyer would go to the prosecution and say, check this out, and have it investigated. Don't rely on some guy who may be not competent as saying that he did it. He could be trying to get attention. He could be looking for notoriety, etc. But I think it would be enough to cause a competent, honest prosecutor who's trying to do the right thing to at least have that investigated. And that has happened in different cases across the country over history is where a prosecutor gets word that they've convicted the wrong person. It happened a lot when DNA started being used. Right. And they were taking DNA samples of people, and, and fortunately they had held uh, like a bloody shirt or a piece of clothing that had blood on it or some other 
uh, source of DNA. They ran the DNA on that and then ran the DNA on the guy who was in jail for that, and it didn't match. Several people did get uh, released from custody and had their convictions overturned because mm -hmm. of some forensic scientific evidence. And so you would think that if the lawyer for the woman you're talking about found out that Resendez says that he's the one that killed the, those people, that they would go interview him and find out if he knows things that you cannot know. Usually the, the criteria is this. If someone's claiming to have committed a crime and he's talking about specific details that only the criminal would know about, then that's pretty good basis for maybe taking a deep look and maybe uh, overturning a conviction based on that. But if it's something that someone could have gotten by reading a newspaper, that's what prosecutors worry about when you, people come forward after a highly publicized case and they say, I, I'm the one that did it or I know who did it, it's so-and-so. These were my thoughts exactly. Did the attorney that dealt with her appeal know about Resendez's confession? And if he did, did he do anything about it? I've been trying to reach Ray Castro for some time. He was the attorney that represented Andres at his original trial. Hello. I'd left numerous messages, but one evening I managed to reach him on his cell phone. Uh, I am not, like I said, this is a very old case. I believe it was in the late 90s. Mm, it was. Uh, and I don't have the file at all now. I mean, I don't recall specific details, maybe a couple of things about the case, but not to where it would be significant. Uh, and I, I don't feel like I'd be a good source about that. Uh, yeah, but that's about the extent that I can tell you on that. Uh, I just recently learned about that, the correspondence that they had. Mm. So you didn't know that I'm at talking, the time? No. Once I was finished with the trial, I didn't have any contact, unless it could have been the appellate lawyers. I don't know who they were. I was interviewing Jack Zimmerman, who represented Resendez at his uh, habeas appeal. He hadn't heard of the Colahaco case, but of course he represented Resendez and got to know him quite well. And I was telling him about that case and, and some others, and he said it would have been up to the lawyer for the for the woman who was falsely convicted to raise uh, the fact that another person had confessed. But of course, you're saying you didn't know that at the time. But what's her recourse now? Can she well, now? I, said, I don't recall this hmm. at this time. That's what I'm saying. I don't. I'd have to go back and look at the file, which I don't have anymore. This is many years ago. What can she do now with no money? I mean, who who would she would she write to the DA's office and said this was never raised as an issue? You might want to try getting a hold of the appellate lawyer, I guess. Thanks, Ray. I appreciate your luck, man. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye bye. Thanks, Ray. I'd written to Andreas a few times over the years and never received any response. There's so many unanswered questions, and we'll be coming back to them. In the next episode, we return to the Resendez tape and more confessions. But there were three or four in, in the border. Three or four between Arizona and California. Yeah. Remember the guy That's Resendez telling me about possibly four more murders he was never convicted of. If you want to find out what happens next, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite listening destination. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure you rate and review us too. From DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking podcast.
Dead Man Talking is presented by me, Alex Hannaford. The producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Our researcher and production assistant is Connor Tolany. This episode featured additional production from Ryan Katz. Special thanks to Anna Roach and to the band Goodnight Texas, whose song The Railroad is our theme music. And you can check them out at hi, we are goodnight Texas, how are you.com. Don't forget to follow developments to our story or send us messages at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash deadman talking. And you can tweet us at deadman podcast. You can also email us at deadmantalkingpodcast at outlook.com. <laughs>